1: Today is June the 23rd, 2017, and this is episode 2029 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it is Friday, so it is an expert council Q&A show. I've got a pretty good lineup for you today. A lot of diversity in today's show. I have um, a question on what is HIT training? And how do you practice it? And that is for Gary Collins. And I'll tell you right now, hit training is not where you beat on someone or someone beats on you. I guess it could be, but that's not what it really is. It's an acronym. You'll find out all about it in just a bit. We have a question on what is filecoin coin and how do you mine for it from Brandon Todd. We have a question from Michael Jordan on bees and the distance to keep them from other livestock to prevent things like, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, a cow stumbling into a beehive. That could be a bad thing, Right. Um, we have a question from me, actually, for Chef Keith Snow on making emulsions uh, and using something other than mustard. My wife's not a fan of mustard. I try to use as little mustard as possible in an emulsion uh, but sometimes that mustard flavor still comes through, and I'd like to know if there are other more neutral-tasting emulsifiers. So Chef Keith has an answer for us on that, and depending on the answer, might give me a bunch more stuff to share with you on new base, base and marinades in the future. Uh, we have a question on cooking for Erica Strauss, trying to make a homemade tomato sauce similar to ragu. Why would you want to? I know what some of you saying, but others of you get it. I get it now. I, I didn't really get it when it came in, but I get it now. I'll have a little bit to say after Erica's piece on this. Next, I have a question for Doc Bones on the HPV vaccine. I have a little bit different view than he does, but I think all sides need to be heard in these things. And the future of electric and autonomous cars. I have a question on that for me from a little bit different of an angle than we've had the question before and that'll wrap things up. I also have a hell of a song for a Friday for you. For the song of the day, I got a great uh Amazon item of the day review for you. Lots of great stuff coming up in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons. But there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Recently, a new magazine showed up at my house. I had never seen it before. I had never heard it before. It was Self-Reliance Magazine. And I took a look at it and realized it was from the same people, Dave Duffy and his crew, that have been producing Backwoods Home. They sent me an introductory copy because I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home for 20 years. I opened the pages and I was blown away. Pretty much you take what Backwoods Home has done for two decades or more, up the production value, and take focus on self-sufficiency and self-reliance topics, homesteading, canning, cooking, you name it, that type of thing, all of the politics stripped out, hardcore how-to. That's the new Self-Reliance magazine. You can learn more at self-reliance.com. Next up, let's take a look at history, and this year in history, we are now up to the year thirteen. I have two today, one from Southpaw Ben and one from David Verne. I'm going to actually read the one from David Verne first, even though it comes second in the readout, only because I think it works better that way. So here we go. The Young General, contributed by David Verne. Augustus continues to prepare for his death as he feels his health will continue to fail him. He sends his grandson Germanius to command eight legions at the border of Germania. Germanius is a popular figure in Rome and has held the consulship last year. He is only 28 and has a good claim to the throne. Augustus is ensuring that a good general is holding the border and a potential claimant is out of Rome. Meanwhile, the chosen heir, Tiberius, can ensure that none will question his appointment as emperor after Augustus' death. My take by David Verne. When he was consul, Germanius would advocate for accused people to Augustus directly. This won him favor with the common people. He also had a reputation for caring about his men. In a couple of years after a fierce battle in Germania, a wounded and battled, battered Roman army will be met by Germanicus' wife, Agrippa, uh, who will hand it out food and medicine. It's hard to tell 2,000 years later, but I think Germanius. Uh, actually cared and wasn't doing these things for political gain. Uh, then from South Paul Ben we have the third Augustan census contributed by South Paul Ben. This year, 20 years after the previous census, Augustus will decide to conduct a census of the Roman Empire. As we heard in David's section, uh, Augustus is preparing for his death, and the census is likely just one other way he's doing that. My take by South Bob Ben, I read or heard somewhere that there are two major reasons a government or ruler will conduct a census. One, to see how many men they have that are capable of being used as soldiers, and to figure out how many much they can make with taxes. Well, I'm sure both reasons are part of why the census was conducted. I think part of it is so Augustus can see how well his emperorship went, and as well as set a starting place for his successor to build from and to compare to I think definitely yeah so he can see but I also think that so if you're an emperor of Rome you're concerned with your legacy and you know that you're going to be gone soon you know that you're going to die so by doing something like a census it's actually recorded and that means it's then in the record and then that future generations know that this is what you know, one of the actions you took and what the state of the empire was under your stewardship I think would be another way to look at that. I think the bigger overall lesson here, for me, reading back to this, it it makes me think of of older people in my life when I was a child. And I'm talking like seven, eight years old, and I would visit my grandmother and grandfather in Pennsylvania before I actually lived there. So we were living in Florida at the time, and usually like in the summer I'd go up for three or four weeks um, and maybe we would go during winter. And we were part of a very tight-knit community up there, and I had a whole group of great-aunts and great-uncles and Chuchis and all different types of things in the Ukrainian world, including families on our street that just went back so far with our family that they actually came to the United States at the same time on the same ship. And one of these families was named Debsky. And I used to walk up and talk to old man and old lady Debsky. And that was a completely, perfectly honorable term to use, just so that you understand the community that I was part of. When you called somebody old man somebody or the old man or something like that, that was a term of very high honor and very high respect. So just so you understand that, an eight-year-old yes would say, I'm going to go see old man Debsky And nobody would be like, don't call him that. Everybody would be like, oh, okay. Right? So I'd walk my little eight year old ass up the hill about half a mile, I guess, to their house. And I'd talk to them and I'd walk through their gardens with them. They had this beautiful piece of land with berries and stuff like that I could pick. And they used to let me trap their rabbits and I would just trap them to catch them and let them go in like a live catch trap and all. But we would sit around and we would talk. And I remember very clearly the old lady and the old man telling me at times that they would soon be dead. That they would, they would, you know, they were getting to their time. Let's say, oh, not tomorrow, and I'll probably see you next year, but, you know, I'm, I'm almost 90 now, and, you know, these guys were in good shape for their age, too, you know, and, you know, just we don't live forever. And they were making some level of preparations for their death, not because they got a cancer diagnosis, not because their health was failing, because they were almost 90, and you just you just you know you don't get to live to be 120 generally, so you know you're looking at 10 years at best, and you know you're looking at if you're 90, maybe five years that you can still do what you're doing now, and even if you make it another five, you know you really aren't in control anymore. And they they had an acceptance of that, and it wasn't just of, of, of a pure faith thing; it was a, a a resonance that hey, this is just the way that life is. And I, I think that we've gotten to a point where we're trying to cheat death, and we fear death, and we don't accept death anymore. And I don't think that it's healthy. I don't think that it's healthy at all. I think that we were better off 30, 40 years ago and back when people prepared for their death, not just by having life insurance and prepaying for a funeral, but by simply you know, making sure their household was in order, their family was in order, and that there was a plan for what the family would do without them. I hope that as I age, I start my preparations at the right time, and I hope they're well taken care of by the time that I take a dirt nap. My take by Jack Spear. I want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got... A return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a hundred percent return on your investment from day one. First, you get a uh, free lifetime discount membership to SafeCastle Royal. Vic Rontala sell, sells that every day for forty nine bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you fifty bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. And with that, we have our first question of the day for an expert council member. This one's for Gary Collins, and it is on a method of training called HIT training. And what's that all about and how do we do it? Gary, you can take it away now.
2: Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I discuss all things primal lifestyle, paleo diet, simple living, and living off the grid. Uh, another interesting question today on HIT, which is high intensity interval training, and the best way to adapt it in order to get the most of your workout. And what I would do, I would change it to what he's doing. I do hit training twice a week. I do not do it every day. I go into the gym because you can overtax yourself. It's kind of uh, mimicking the flight or uh, fight or flight response in your body, so you do not want to do it all the time. Uh, I would cut it down to 10 minutes, so 30 seconds all out, 30 seconds rest period. Do that for 10 minutes. He does a five-minute warm-up, and then maybe cool down for five minutes, and then I would spend 40 minutes doing resistance training. Remember, guys and gals, that resistance training or lifting weights is a way to continue to build strength that helps keep your bones strong by the stress it puts on them so it rebuilds, it keeps your bones strong. This is uh, great for people who are aging, but I would recommend resistance training three to four times a week with that gained lean muscle. It burns more calories, which allows you to be leaner. Um, it's just a simple, more, more high density muscle mass. The, the more efficient you are at burning, burning fuel and also your metabolism, which is converting food into usable energy. Uh, I hope that helps. I, this is a simple one for me. Uh, like I said, I would focus more on the resistance training, drop that cardio down, you know, 20 to 20 to 30 minutes max and go for walks every night. I, I recommend that. I've been talking till I'm blue in the face on walking. You should go for a 30 to 40 minute, 45 minute walk every night after dinner if you can. You know, take the kids, take the dog for a walk. It's a great way to de-stress and burn some extra calories, get some exercise. Hope that helps, guys. And also make sure to check out my new book, Going Off the Grid, and my new podcast, Old Dudes, New Tricks. And you can find that at olddudesnewtricks.com, and it's on iTunes. Thanks a lot.
1: Just a couple quick ads there. I absolutely agree with the concept of walking. I think it is the best exercise uh, that humans can do, because I think it's the most natural exercise that humans historically got. And uh, I'm going all the way back to paleo days and all the way up to, like, you know, before everybody had a horse. That's how you got places. The human body was built for walking. It wasn't built for sitting. It wasn't built for riding in cars. It wasn't built for sitting in easy chairs. You know, it wasn't built for laying on the ground and doing nothing. I guess in some (laughs) levels it was because we have to sleep. But as far as activity, it was built to walk. And when we're walking, we're doing the things that are most natural for our body. And I'm also a big uh, believer in, in resistance in your life. I, it doesn't necessarily have to be weightlifting, but you know, if you're gardening and you're bending down and picking things up, if you are, you know, doing chores that involve lifting heavy weight and things like that, you're, I'm not necessarily saying it will replace a fitness regimen as far as keeping you in, you know, top-notch physical condition. But but what Gary was saying about bones, you know, I was just talking to you guys about the, these old folks that I remember from my, my childhood, and what I don't remember is hardly any of them, except kind of one or two that were more like the shut-in types, ever having problems with osteoporosis. You know, my, my grandmother, um, I, I never remember her having any kind of brittle, brittle bones issues or anything, but she was always doing something. She was always dragging stuff around. She was always carrying stuff. Um, and I always used to tell her, settle down, Grandma, let me take her. Should I have to move or I'll die, right? That was how she felt. And I think that there's something to that. But I think that part of the um, the explosion of problems with osteoporosis in the last 100 years is a combination of nutritional deficiencies. Even though we are eating better nutrition in some ways than we ever have, we're also eating worse nutrition. And what I mean is malnutrition was a lot more common 100 years ago than it is today. Pure malnutrition, just not getting enough of the essential nutrients. But we weren't eating garbage. So if you had a good diet, you know, if you had access to a lot of food, you were a lot healthier 100 years ago than you are today. It wasn't... That people didn't have good food is they didn't have enough of it. That's That was a big part of the malnutrition program. Uh, problem, I guess you should say. Next question I have is for uh, Brandon on Filecoin. What the heck is Filecoin and how do we get our hands on some of it as miners? And is it really mining or is it something different in this world?
3: Hello, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer a question for the expert council. This question comes in from Don, where he's basically asking, what sort of hardware and software will he need to mine something called Filecoin? Well, what the heck is Filecoin? <laughs> so, a little background. To understand how Filecoin works, first we have to talk about IPFS, or Interplanetary File System. Well, what the heck is Interplanetary File System? Well, let me see if I can try and explain in a way we can understand. Uh IPFS, or Interplanetary File System, was designed by Protocol Labs and released around 2014. It is sort of like the opposite of how the HTTP part of the Internet works today. Today, the Internet works with clients and servers where, if you want to retrieve some data via Google search, your computer or client sends a message out into the Internet and retrieves that info from a server. With things like IPFS, your computer or client has agreed to be a node or mini-server on that network, so everyone using the network is also storing and serving info to others. This eliminates centralized servers altogether. Think of it like a swarm, as with things like BitTorrent, for all of you that may or may not be uh, familiar with BitTorrent, where now when you make a Google search, you are connected to all of the nodes or swarm. They all have little pieces of what you need and converge on your requests and send you the complete file collectively. With Filecoin and agreeing to be a part of that node system, you will store random info on your computer. This information will, of course, be encrypted. As a reward, you will be awarded with Filecoin. Also, as a user of the storage feature with Filecoin, the opposite occurs. When you upload or store files in the Filecoin network, you spend Filecoin to do so. So, you know, if you're uh, looking to store files for people on the Filecoin network, then you will earn Filecoin, or if you want to store files for yourself using the Filecoin network, then you're going to spend Filecoin. So that's kind of how that works. And it uses this framework of IPFS um, to do these things. So. There are some other similar projects like the Filecoin project, which are trying to do similar things right now. If you're interested, you can also take a look at SiaCoin or S I A C O I N Storage or S T O R J and Madesafe. And we talk, I talked about that in a big uh, uh, podcast I did with Jack, and that stands for Massive Array Internet Disk Safe Ask, asks access for everyone. Madesafe. All of these use some sort of either decentralized or distributed file protocol like IPFS or Interplanetary File System to host and serve files. Now that we have sort of explained Filecoin, let's uh, take a look at what is going on with Filecoin these days. So, it seems like not much has actually been released yet. If you go to Filecoin.io, the main website for Filecoin, it has a white paper listed, but clearly says on the website that this white paper is three years old, and... Uh, A new updated paper is coming soon. When going through this old white paper from 2014, it references that Filecoin will be built on top of Bitcoin several times. This appears to have changed. According to multiple articles and various Reddit and Bitcoin talk forum posts I found, IPFS decided to migrate to the Ethereum network after recognizing a significant difference in development communities between the two networks. So... Some are also talking about a Filecoin ICO coming up. Um, A CNBC article that I found dated Thursday, 25th, May 2017 referenced a Filecoin ICO stating that Filecoin will be the first offering on a new platform called CoinList that is targeting accredited investors or people with a net worth of at least $1 million, excluding the value of their homes. When going to CoinList.co, it clearly shows Filecoin is coming soon. So, to answer your question, it looks like the white paper listed on Filecoin.io is at least partially incomplete at this time, and judging by the move to Ethereum over Bitcoin blockchain, it looks as if the software requirements to store or mine Filecoin would have changed as well. I do not believe at this time it is possible to mine Filecoin. You could subscribe to the CoinList.co email and sign up for, for the newsletter over at Filecoin.io and, and, and keep updated. You could also follow the Protocol Labs' Facebook and Twitter accounts to get updates as well. Hey, keep in mind that I may have missed something and just can't find where this project is being hosted and actively worked on. If you find that this project is live and people can join uh, the Filecoin network, please let me know because I'm excited about this project as well for various different reasons. Thanks again for the question, Don. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com wishing you all a fulfilling day.
1: I have something to add here that's not really about this product in particular, other than this product actually meets some requirements that I've been trying to get across to people about the concept of these new altcoins and ICOs and investing in them and what I look at when I look at a coin. In this instance, the token or the coin or the e-money or whatever has a utility. In other words, it has a function That is specific to the application, which may or may not actually be successful or work or whatever. So I'm not throwing down an endorsement of this, but it does tick one of the key boxes. And I think I'm going to soon put out a short YouTube video about this and what people need to be looking at. What I expect to see coming out of all these companies, coming out with all these ICOs, these offerings of of tokens and coins, etc., uh, if, if they expect this space to become in any way sustainable, because the way it's going right now, sooner or later, it's going to be a giant massacre. Because at some point, people are going to be holding like you know this portfolio of 30 different altcoins and start asking themselves, what does any of this shit actually do? What does any of it actually do? Well, if it's, if it's a Swarm City token, it, it works inside the Swarm City application for the exchange of goods and services inside Swarm City, And that's the only thing that works inside Swarm City. And Swarm City has an app that specifically connects people so they can do that. So then I would say, okay, well, in this one, I think that there's a a long-term benefit to this form of currency because it has a specific application. It does something that other currencies don't, and it has a utility. Where if we look at something else, we could say, okay, here's this company that's building this application in blockchain that does something for somebody but what does, their, what does their particular token actually do? Is it like just basically an analog to a stock, but it's not as good as a stock because it doesn't actually represent a share of ownership in the company? Well, then that doesn't tick that box, and people are going to start liquidating all of that. And sooner or later, they're going to get to a point where no one wants to buy it anymore. And that's when you'll see the equivalent of the dot-com crash in the world of cryptocurrency. And as I've said earlier this week, it won't mean the end of cryptocurrency any more than a dot com crash meant the end of the internet or the the biggest and best companies that actually did something on the internet. I remember what happened. My dad said, I told you the internet was going to go broke. And I'm like, Dad, it doesn't work that way. None of this works that way. The internet is not a company. You know, it took me years to find out he thought AOL was the internet. Um, he, yeah, he did, Without, not because of the way most AOL users thought AOL was the Internet. Like, he didn't use the Internet at all. He just thought AOL, like, AOL was the Internet, right? He didn't understand what the, inter- the Internet was infrastructure. That it was like saying that the, the highways are going to go broke. Well, the government that maintains the highways can go broke, but the highways will still be there, and somebody's going to pick up and use that infrastructure, right? And that's how the Internet was. That's how cryptocurrency, I think, is going to go. And, and these different currencies are either going to have to have a utility within their application or a user-friendliness, a user-adaptation, a user-confidence that's higher than their peers. And we are going to see a fettering out of, you know, theglobe.com, gone forever, even though it was worth you know, billions of dollars at one point. It's just gone, like a fart in the wind. We'll see the equivalent of, of companies like Yahoo that were like rock stars, of the dot-com age, and they're still here, but their stock ain't worth really shit because it doesn't really go up. It doesn't pay shit for dividends because it doesn't pay dividends. It, it it it's just there. It's it's a it's a loser play as a hold. If you if you bought it when a when it was a hundred dollars a share, and it went to three hundred and even higher, and you thought woohoo, and then it dropped, and you've held it since then. How much longer are you going to hold it, wait for it? To get it's just not happening. And then there will be the Googles and the Amazons of that world that become long-term, marathon-running, consistent gainers. And to the people doing these tokens and these ICOs, if you can't define what the purpose of your currency is other than to raise funds for your project, you will be the globe.com. You will be the dot-com companies that had huge stock valuations but no real underlying product, or your product is so commonplace that it will be replaced with something that's free, or your product is so easy to emulate that somebody will replace it with something 10 times better, 10 times over, and you'll be gone, vanquished into the dust. And for those of the people that are out there like that that are just in it to be able to make $50 million really quick and try to build a company with it, I guess you can get away with that. But if you're going to stick around, you're going to have to have something that it does. And that's the big question I have. What I like about this concept of Filecoin is there's something that it does. Now, could somebody do it better? Could somebody do it faster, etc.? Sure. But at least it does something. There's a reason to use it. I loan out my extra computer space so you can store your shit on it, and you pay me in the token that is native to that ecosystem. Okay, that makes sense. And we need to see more things like that. Now, the accredited investor thing, I don't know how anybody believes that's going to protect anybody. Because this is how the ICOs are going right now. And I think it's important that you guys understand this. The companies that, and the large investors that are getting the bulk of the, share, or the coins in these ICOs are doing it specifically to dump the currency as quickly as possible. I've mentioned it before, but it's, the, it's like the most recent example of a perfect example, the basic attention token that's part of the Brave browser. And that is, again, a token that I see the utility of the token. There's a thing that it does that's native to its ecosystem. That you would, you could see why big companies would want to be part of it because, hey, I can reach people with advertising that are the type of people that turn off their advertising, but they're willing to turn it on because of the filtered quality and guarantees of the advertising and because they benefit from being advertised to. Yeah, okay, but 35 million bucks in six minutes and about six people got 95% of the tokens. For three and a half cents a piece. And they've been selling them for 24 to 18 cents as it bounces up and down. Why do you think? Do you think they bought it to hold it? No. They bought it because they knew it was hot. They knew it was marketed well. They knew it had a great story and they knew people would want to buy it. And they knew they could buy as much as they could get and they could triple, quadruple, make five times their money over six months as they dumped it all back into all the people that didn't get into the ICO. If the ICO is a a, a currency that has a good story that's going to be well adopted by the average person that can set up a Bittrex account, they're going to end up buying it anyway, and they're going to pay more for it. So this move toward accredited investors with ICOs is actually just a way to make it more defined that less people get to take part in them, and I think that's a mistake. Just my thoughts. Uh, Next, we have a question from Michael Jordan and bees. And specifically, keeping bees away and distances from your housing of your other livestock.
4: This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer of a bee friendly county, Cheyenne, Wyoming. <clears throat> I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. My question is Michael, what considerations are there with bees and other livestock? Just moved. And so I have the opportunity of choosing a location for my bees on my new place. We'll be getting horses and cows, so I'm curious about livestock-related considerations. When I first started beekeeping, one of my mentors said, Bees hate horses. He said, Don't put bees near horses or they'll go after them. Don't work bees after working horses they'll go after you. Have you found this to be true? What do you do? I think this is a good amount of separation between bees and other livestock. Can you tell me what it would be?
0: Hmm.
4: Also, I have some extra supers, frames, etc. I need to stop and store until next season. Any recommendations on storage for empty equipment? So let's let's, uh, hit probably that part first. Anything that you have extra... Uh, I would wash thoroughly in uh, vinegar and salt water, scrub it all down, make sure it's all good, make sure it's really dried off, and then I would store it in a storage shed. In the storage shed, I'd put a couple infrared lights in it, and uh, every once in a while, I'd turn on the infrared hot lights, keep the storage shed warm enough, uh, and the lights on to kill off any wax larva from wax moth or anything like that. And any frames that you have, uh, you know, if you're if you're storing them, stack the boxes with the frames in the boxes with the comb already built on them, and then put uh, wood on top of it like uh, paneling or something, so nothing can get in between the boxes. The object is when the boxes are all stacked together, nothing can get in there, keeping all your wax foundation that's already made still good. So get a storage set, stock your, wash all your equipment good, unless it's pre-made comb. If it's pre-made comb, after you wash your your boxes, put the pre-made comb back in the boxes, stack them all up, covering everything up. If you have foundation and stuff that's pre-made out that has honey and stuff in it that you're trying to save, try to wrap that stuff up in saran wrap and then put it in the freezer for next year, letting it unthaw for the bees to use. Uh, storage is not too bad. Uh, like I said, I keep everything out that I can, and I have the bees clean it all off, and then I store it in the wintertime when it's cold, so that way the larva doesn't have anything to produce from if it's wax or beetle. Uh, and then, uh, like I said, cleaning it with salt and uh, vinegar water is really good to clean everything off. It kills a lot of stuff, and when bees go to clean it off later, they like the salt water. So storing after the equipment is pretty easy. Just clean it off really good before you use it again. So Matt's looking at a new location in uh, beautiful Wyoming. The cold, uh, wind-beaten land of the dumb and the brave. Or just, you know, some of us are just, I'll go dumb. Uh, I live here, and uh, the one reason I live here is because of my family's heritage that's carved into land here from Ireland. So that's the one reason why I stay here in Wyoming. But it's uh, very windy here. Make sure that you have good windbreaks, tie-downs, and uh, hive stands to hold your hives. That's pretty important, and especially in our area. But when it comes to location, the rules are, always apply for site location, adequate sunlight, water, food, wind blocks, proper site setup. I mean, you can see this uh, on my quick class at Permaethos uh, for apiary setup. Um, I'll include a link for Jack to put out there. So that way you can tune in and kind of see how to set up an apiary. But that's always the same. Uh, When it comes to critters that are not pets, uh, we need to think of more than just safe pedestrian pathways. And when we set up an apiary, that's the first thing people think of is you set it all up so it's user-friendly for the beekeeper, good for the bees, and that it doesn't hinder everybody else. But, you know, you're talking about other critters now. And... That's going to be a little little different. So let's look at some of the problems because we're not just going to try to make people safe. We're trying to keep maybe even our pets or animals out there. Uh, Cattle rub on things. Uh, The fence posts, sides of your bar in your house, uh, wood, it doesn't matter. The cattle rub. Uh, You'll need to fence off your bees uh, so they will not rub on the hives and knock them over. Most large animals will rub on hives until stung a lot, and then they learned not to mess with them anymore, and they stayed the hell away. In places like Thailand and India, beehives are hung in the air and not put on stands. The hive is uh, hung between two posts. The posts are spaced about 10 feet apart with a hive hung in between them on two ropes. Uh, And then, So there's a post, a beehive, a post, a beehive, a post, a beehive. And there's a beehive about every 10 feet. And they usually use top bar beehives, and that way they can just lift the tops off, work the bees, put the tops back on, and not have to worry about stacking anything because these are hung, suspended in the air a little bit. Uh, they're called the electric fence. And they're called the electric fence because of the sound of the buzzing bees, kind of like the buzzing of an electric fence. Uh, the reason they put them up is because, uh, elephants never forget. Once the elephants are stung around the nostrils, the eyes, the ears, they tend to, see to always remember that that sound of the buzzing fence is a place not to trespass through gardens and walkways. So, you know, bees pretty much can defend themselves off when it comes to big things. You just don't want things rubbing up on them. Uh, the other thing is a problem that you might have with this things is birds. Birds can be a problem. Now, I have never had problems with bees and birds, but there are birds that will eat your bees. You know, I have had chickens, turkeys, and ducks. I have never seen these birds eat any of my bees. Uh, but I have been in India, and they have a bee killer, and it's a bird that's called a bee killer, and it hunts down bees and eats them. And I know that uh, woodpeckers can be a problem with bees here in the United States. Uh, by knocking on the hives, putting holes through the hives, and then uh, pulling the bees out through the hives, through those holes, just like they were getting grubs and stuff out of the uh, a log. So once they can kind of burrow into the side of the hive, they'll eat the larva out of the comb. So there are some problems with birds. So, you know, larger animals will rub on the hives, and birds will eat your your bees. So let's get back to what, what you're talking about, about uh what are we going to do? We're going to get some critters. We're going to get some cattle, some horse. Never heard anything about horses in particular with bees, but I knew horses sweat a lot uh, and bees might be attracted to the salt and water from the sweat of the bees or from the horses. So that could be something that would happen. Uh, Personally, I, I wouldn't know. I think the best thing is to always keep your bees and in an establishment because you know they are a noxious insect that, that can kill and hurt things so i always like to have a nice open area where i can work my bees and i have it separated and fenced off where people usually don't see them and a secure lines of zoning so that things can't get to them either so let's get back to what we need and what we need to do uh so you're going to put the cattle and stuff in there the goats sheep ducks anything that you want to get the bees off the ground in fact, that is the number one thing when it comes to setting up an apiary that I look for is uh, you know and it's only like a thirty percent possibility, but it's the number it's the hundred percent thing I look for every time is that that uh, I like to come to site and when I go to set it up is can I get the bees off the ground? Can I get the bees ten to twenty feet in the air? I mean that's their natural habitat, nature anyway, so if I can get them up there, I eliminate almost a hundred percent of all predators. Bears, fox, raccoons, skunks, people, anything, it's off the ground. I mean, so if you can get them off the ground a little bit, uh, everything can walk underneath them. Remember, bees don't really manage anything that's within the 10 to 15 foot area. That's their, what we call, uh, flight orientation zone. So underneath the bees, you know, cattle and everything can kind of walk underneath them and never mess with the bees, so... You're up in the air. You've eliminated all of it in one shot. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's hard to do that. And uh, when it's uh, off the ground and stuff, it's, uh, it's mostly to f- help control the flight path. And that's one reason why we get them off the ground is uh, if they're off the ground, nothing, nothing's in the way when the bees are when they're there. So that's, that's elimination. Uh, the other always is good to always think about is out of sight, out of mind when it comes to bees. If you can't see them and the critters can't see them, that makes it better for the bees that day because the bees don't see them, they don't see the bees, and everybody works pretty better. So putting uh, camouflage up, and I mean like camouflage, I mean like netting, uh, trellises, lath, uh, or lattice, uh, things that are usable you know, to kind of deter the eye from looking to kind of see what's going on. You know, gazebos, you know, oh, it's a nice gazebo, but when you go in, the bees are inside the gazebo or something. So, out of sight, out of mind, controlling the flight patterns and stuff, off the ground is always better. Now, backyards are different than small hobby farms. You know, a uh, backyard, you're on like no more than an eighth of an acre. I mean, it, you, you're talking to, you know, a quarter of a. You know, it's a block. So when it comes to doing things for animals there, it's mostly putting lattice up, controlling the flight patterns and out of sight and mind, and getting things up over the air and canopies and stuff. So your dogs don't get into it, uh, kids playing in the backyard, get the bees up out of the air. But when you're talking about uh, a place that's going to have cattle, goats, pigs, and, you know, who else knows what wanders, wanders by Uh, you know, bears, anything, you know, we're going to start putting up uh, fencing. So we're going to start marking out our zones and everything when it comes to beekeeping. And five foot around the hive. So if you took a string and put it right in the center of the beehive and took a can of spray paint and marked five foot around, we're going to lay plastic on the ground and white rock, and that marks our five foot zone, ten foot around the hives. We're going to place fence. And I just like T-posts and chicken wire. Uh, sometimes I to go all the way down to half inch by half inch hard wire. But chicken wire usually works pretty good and keeps most of everything out. About 90% of all your critters out, skunks, anything, right, unless they're really hopping over the fence. But, you know, a good four-foot-tall fence of chicken wire keeps a lot of things out. And then 15-foot away is my bear fence if I need it. And that's usually uh, three strands, usually separated at two foot, uh, a foot off the ground, and then every two foot after that, getting it up to where it's about six foot tall for a bear. Most fencing, if it's going to be electric fence, is five foot tall. So the top one's five foot, three foot, and then usually about six to eight inches off the ground. And I'm using 7,000 volt. And then I wrap uh, some bacon up on the top so if the bear decides to bite on the top, he'll have something to remember. So that's kind of the fencing. And we've also marked out our zones so that we know that uh, five foot away, Right? We've got ant plastic on the ground. Ants aren't going to build anything near our hives. No bugs, no nothing. We've got white rock reflecting up, heating up our beehives, and giving us a good area to work that we know if we're in the five foot area, basically that's where we're going to be working the bees. That, at five foot, uh, the bees are usually coming out, bouncing on our veils, coming out to check out where we are anyway, and this is where we're working, so, With a good cleared off area of plastic and white rock, I've marked out my area five foot of work zone and basically the red zone where the bees could possibly start stinging us. Now at 10 foot uh, is where we need to start putting our bee suit on. And that's basically where we're starting to put our chicken fence on. So before we can enter the chicken fence, we usually put on our suit because this is going to give us our area of work zone that we know outside that 10-foot fence zone. We're really not going to encounter any of the bees, right? But it's a good time to start putting on our uh, our suit. It's a place where we can start walking around, start building uh, our three sisters' food forest for bees, which happens to be sunflowers, morning glory, and then maybe either russian sage uh, or some squash, something that we can start building on the ground. You know, we know the sunflowers are going to start attracting the ants away from everything, building uh strong poles for The morning glories to start vining all up, to start building a windbreak. And then both of those are good food forests along with Russian sage. that you're blocking lots of wind, moving a lot of bugs and pests away from the hives for the sunflowers, and then creating a food forest where bees are about starting to really start to come out of the hive and start looking for forage because we're that 10 to 15 foot away so 10 foot is where we put the chicken fence and that's also our marker line for our bee suit now 15 feet is basically where we can stand back watch the bees and do everything they want 15 feet is actually not very far away right we're still within you know at least two people laying on the ground Two people at five foot ten foot, right? So we're still within a margin if two people are laying on the ground. So 15 foot is where we can actually walk completely around it, and that's our bear line marker. That gives us enough where the bears can get entangled between the chicken fence and the electric fence to kind of keep our bees in a good location where they're not going to get it. Now, we can also put up lattice and uh, netting and stuff. Between the 5 foot and 10 foot marker, and this is also to help control the bees' flight. That the bees will come to that and then have to go up, you know. And if you put this uh, netting up, let's say 10 feet in the air, the bees have to go at least 10 foot to 15 feet in the air before they can go over it, which makes the bees have to go f- higher and further, controlling it even more. So, we can use this to block off the site and the hives also giving them a shade and also keeping the bees out of sight. So now as you see is a barbed wire fence, uh, you see this uh, chicken fence and then you see lattice. So you're not really seeing what's all in there. Nothing else can see in there. But you've made constant barriers so that the bears and stuff that are bigger can't see it. Nothing can rub on it. And you've made some great deterrents to keep everything away from it and out of out of out of sight now, when it comes to the birds it 's very hard to keep birds away. everything that 's on the ground, such as um, guineas and everything if you 've got this fencing and everything around it they 're not going to be underneath your bees unless you put your bees up in the air, and you 've eliminated all ground birds that are basically your farm birds now, if you have birds that eat bees, remember our lattice or Uh, screen that went 10 foot high between the 10 foot and 5 foot barrier, right, if we put bird netting 15 foot in the air and 15 foot around it, we've made our 15 by 15 barrier now. At 15 foot, our post could be used for the electric fence as well as holding our bird netting in the air. Now birds can't attack the bees coming in and out of the beehives, and the bees have more of a chance at 15 foot away to start darting and foraging before birds can start getting them. Most of your birds that feed on those types of insects hover around the hive, knocking the birds as they come in and out because it's a very direct flight pattern. But if you can get the the bees to fly 15 feet away before adjustment, it's really hard for the birds to find out where they're coming from and attacking them. So, when it comes to critters on your farm, right, make sure you're doing your zones, five, about seven for your lattice, 10 foot for your fencing, 15 foot for your electric fence, marking out your zones and getting stuff far enough away from the bees and able to work them. And then, if you're going to store your equipment, try to put them in a nice warm, dry place and, uh, I always prefer, like my sheds, I would put glass roofing on it. Sunlight and stuff detours bugs from growing. So if you have wax moth and hive beetle, if you're getting them direct sunlight, they will not grow. And the heat and direct sunlight kills that stuff. So... Uh, Stack everything in a nice warm, dry space. Keep everything covered and everything usually works out. And then if you've got stuff that you're bringing out that uh, you think you have problems with, spray with a little salt water and vinegar. And I think that's going to help you out. Hey, I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Remember, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. You know, let's try to buy some things from some small cottage industries. and Let's get some people started on some good ideas. And remember, help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help too.
1: All right, so uh, my next question is for Chef Keith Snow, and it actually is for me. And I'm looking for emulsifiers other than mustard for making emulsions. Specifically for marinades and base. And just before we hear Chef's answer, an emulsifier is something that allows the creation of emulsion. Oh gee, that's not an answer if you don't know, right? Okay, so what that means is it prevents liquids that normally would separate from separating, i.e. oil-based liquids and water-based liquids. A typical example might be a, a salad dressing using red wine vinegar and olive oil. Everybody's probably made that, you put it in a jar, Throw some Italian seasonings in it, shake it up, dump it on your salad. Before you even dump it on your salad, though, what happens? They come apart. Well, there's different things you can use for emulsification. And many marinades and bases, where the person that's formulating them is aware of the fact that emulsions exist and understands you can't have a marinade with oil and water-based liquids in it and actually get that marinade to marinate uniformly without creating an emulsion, will call for mustard. I like most of the marinades that I make with mustard, but my wife's not a fan of them, so I'm looking for sh- some help from Chef Keith and making some of my base marinades, etc., without using mustard. So, Chef, what can we do instead? Hey, it's Chef
5: Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and TastyEducation.com. I wanted want to answer Jack's question about emulsifying uh, vinaigrettes without mustard. Now, one of the common problems with using like a Dijon mustard as an emulsifying agent in a vinaigrette is uh, it does a great job emulsifying, but it also brings a very strong mustardy sort of Dijon flavor. And, and this kind of uh, conjures up, um, you know, the aromas of wasabi, of horseradish, you know, those properties that mustard has. Some people find those a little bit offensive, Now, if that is the case and my kids are like that, if I put mustard in a vinaigrette, you know, my son usually says, "Mm, it's sour. And, you know, he doesn't really dig it. And they kind of like, you know, make that face when you take a lemon and you try and eat it. You know the face I'm talking about. And that's the problem with Dijon mustard. So what else can you use to give it some... Uh emulsification, which means to make the oil and vinegar come together in one harmonious relationship, like a fine marriage. Uh, in order to do that, and as you know, with a fine marriage or a marriage or oil and vinegar, they generally have a little... Trouble getting together and they need to, uh, need to be coaxed. This is where the emulsifier comes in. So if you're ditching the Dijon, you, the first thing I would suggest is a little bit of dry mustard. Now the canned, it's a little tin. It's usually a yellow tin. I think the brand is Coleman's from England. It's Coleman's dry mustard. Now, literally as little as like a half a teaspoon of that stuff, can bring quite a bit of emulsification properties to a vinaigrette without bringing the super over-the-top mustard flavor that wet Dijon mustard will bring. Now, you still will taste a little bit. Now, I would definitely test that because that's an excellent emulsifier. After that, I'd be looking at things like xanthan gum. Now, xanthan gum is available in most supermarkets. Um, Hodgkin's Mill, which is like a flour and pancake, you know, mix brand, um, usually at the bottom shelf in your baking aisle. They have it. Bob's Red Mill has it. So xanthan gum is very uh, available. Now that's an excellent emulsifier. Um, and a little bit more about some of those emulsifiers, you'll see guar gum and carrageenan. Now carrageenan is starting to become on the nasty list. Um, a lot of studies say that it causes some intestinal distress, gives people stomach aches and diarrhea. And they're even claiming some brain issues with it. Now, I don't know if any of that's true, but I do know that it's become so well known that it's not now starting to appear on packages. So it says does not contain carrageenan. And you'll find this stuff in everything. Like even ice cream has carrageenan. Now it comes from seaweed. So that's one that I probably would avoid. Um, another thing you'll see when you're looking at all different types of products and emulsifiers like this uh, are in just about everything you'll see lethicin or soy lethicin Now an egg yolk contains a uh, a ton of lethicin that's why it's a great emulsifier used in sauces like hollandaise or in mayonnaise um, so there is lethicin in uh very very you know natural sources as well. Um, soy lecithin can be purchased at the store and used in in your cooking. Comes in little granules, but the chances of it being non-GMO are uh, slim to none. So I would immediately nix that one off the list, and uh, as well as carrageenan. And you can buy these these ingredients. They're very, um, you know, very widely available. If you go to something like the Modernist Pantry um, on the internet, you can buy all these little additives. Now, um, xanthan gum. Just like flour in a sauce or, uh, flour in a pancake batter, it needs to do what's known as bloom. And blooming is when something that's dry hits something that's wet, the time it takes from, from it hitting the wet, uh, surface or substance till, to its till it's completely waterlogged or, you know, Wet, there's a time there and that's called the bloom time. and you can just imagine uh, making let's say you're going to make a little crepe batter and oftentimes I'll do that in my Vitamix. So I'll have um, wet ingredients, milk, eggs, whatever it might be in there. and then the dry ingredients go on top they're they're blended in. Now there's a time called the bloom time where if you make it right away, it's going to be totally different texture than if you wait. Usually it's going to be much thicker because as those little teeny particles of the xanthan gum or flower, as they absorb the liquid around them, they bloom and they, you know, they kind of expand. Therefore they tighten up or thicken something. So if you're going to make a vinaigrette using the xanthan gum, you've got to give it some time to bloom and do not add more until, you know, it's, it's had, you know, 30 minutes in some cases to bloom properly. Because that's when you wind up with a thick sludge. When you open up the bottle of your salad dressing, you pour it out and it kind of gloops out like, you know, glue. You've added too much and you didn't calculate the bloom properly. Now you want to start, if you're making just a, you know, a little bottle of vinaigrette or a little, you know, a couple of cups of it for your nightly salad, you want to start uh, by adding just a little tip of a butter knife, you, you know, put it into xanthan gum. I mean, I'd say, an eighth of a teaspoon, something like that. Put it in there, mix it very well quickly to get it in there, and then let it bloom for a while, and you'll see what the thickness will be. Now, you're probably going to mess up a couple of these and over-thicken them, and oftentimes people say, oh, it looks fine, and they put it in the refrigerator, and then the cold will really make it sludgy. So you have to be careful with the xanthan gum or anything like lecithin. Now, there's other ways to thicken up um, vinaigrettes or... You know, let's say you're going to make a, a creamy cilantro vinaigrette. You can use dairy ingredients that also contain some lecithin, creme fraiche, um, sour cream, maybe even some mayonnaise is obviously a great thickener because that has quite a bit of lecithin in it from the egg yolks. But if you're making a a nice, uh, you know, creamy vinaigrette of some type, you could certainly use a tablespoon of mayonnaise to help start that uh, emulsifying Procedure. So that I think covers it up. I mean, if you look at the products in the store, you're oftentimes going to see modified food starch, and that is um, very commonly used. It comes from, you know, corn, potato, wheat, tapioca. That's how they they get that starch out. And it's a very chemical process to extract the starch, um, but it's used to to make things dissolve. It's used to make powdery foods you know be uh, keep from becoming lumpy so there's a lot of uses for these um starches uh I don't like to eat um products that contain a lot of those you know like modified food starch cuz oftentimes it comes it can't be guaranteed to be gluten free either for those of you worrying about that so I think this probably covers the question um on how to thicken without that heavy Dijon Taste. I hope that works for you, Jack, and anybody else out there. I want to encourage you all to visit my website, tastyeducation.com, especially those of you that are looking for some paleo recipes. One of my courses on there, Ultimate Paleo Beef, contains quite a few um, great recipes, and I'm adding to that. Uh, generally on a weekly basis, new videos going on there. So do check that out, tastyeducation.com. You can click on that Paleo Beef course, and there's several previews there for you to watch. And as always, I appreciate everybody's support out there in TSP land, and I hope you all have a great weekend. Jack, take care, bro.
1: All right, after all of that, I, I think I'll start with – um try mustard rather than all of messing around bloom and and gum um the other thing i think i might try is using egg uh specifically egg white since mayonnaise seems to actually work that might work as well i think we had a little miscommunication there i never used the word vinaigrette i said marinades and base so uh anything i'd be doing this with would be subject to cooking temperatures uh but uh Good answers there. I don't know if I want to play around with Xanthan gum. It sounds like a big pain in the ass. Um, but I never thought of using just maybe some dried powdered mustard as, a, um, as an emulsifier. And if that works, it may be the simplest uh, solution. And it may indeed have far less of a... Um, what am I looking for? A, a mustard taste lent into the marinade or or whatever you're working with, a base, uh, what have you. Um, I also wonder if maybe using your own light-colored mustard seeds, putting them through a spice grinder, might actually be a way to make some of your own dry mustard powder, and that might work as well. So I'll, I'll try both of those and report back to you. And if uh, none of that works, then maybe I'll go ahead and try the, uh, the infamous sanithin gum. But that sounds, that sounds like a pain in the ass. I'm sorry. Uh, next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss on cooking as well. Uh, this one is on making a clone of ragu. Erica, take it away.
6: Hi guys, it's Erica from Northwest Edible Life and wedible.com calling in this week to answer a question about making spaghetti sauce without oregano designed to appeal to someone who really prefers commercial store-bought sauce. So Matthew wrote, Erica, can you please recommend a recipe for homemade spaghetti sauce without oregano? I love to grow tomatoes and I love homemade spaghetti sauce. My problem is my wife is very picky about spaghetti sauce. She will only eat ragu from the store. My wife absolutely despises oregano and really doesn't like basil. So therein lies my dilemma. If you could please give me a recipe that omits oregano and is low on the basil, I'd appreciate it because I haven't found one in the past five years. Well, I do love a challenge. So, okay, let's talk about the characteristics of a commercial pasta sauce like ragu. I went to the store and I picked up a jar of ragu original because... That's how much I love you guys, and I wanted to be working with a known quantity here. So in reading the ingredient label of this jar of ragu, the first thing that stood out is that the sauce is made from tomato paste. It's not made from fresh tomatoes. So in other words, they don't make it by boiling down massive quantities of in-season tomatoes. They take already processed tomato paste and slightly thin that paste out with water and then add spices and flavorings to that. So a good analogy here would be kind of like orange juice concentrate with a little bit of water added versus freshly squeezed orange juice. These are I mean, they're hardly in the same category, right? And then the second big thing I noticed is that the vegetables and the spices in the sauce were all dried, including things like the onion and the garlic. So again, that's going to give us a very processed, cooked kind of flavor. And then the third big observation about this commercial pasta sauce was that it was very sweet. There was hardly any noticeable acidity to the sauce. And when I checked the label, sugar was quite high up on the ingredient list. The fourth observation, which really not a surprise, given the commercial sauce was basically thinned down tomato paste, was the thickness of the sauce. The ragu was closer to what I would think of as a super thick pizza sauce than a pasta sauce in texture. It was very thick and you could like put it on your spoon and it would hold a mound. So what does all this tell us? Well, for folks who love that commercial-style pasta sauce, including Matthew's wife, and I'm sure many people out there um, and, and their kids, um, kids are sort of known for really liking that cooked sort of smooth, sweet texture thing, the trick to making a homemade pasta sauce that will compete with the store-bought version is going to be about getting that long-cooked, thick texture and adding moderately high levels of sugar. Matthew's concern about the oregano and the specific spice is actually far less critical here because in all canning recipes, you can swap out dry herbs and spices to your heart's content with absolutely no effect on safety. In keeping with his wife's preferences, I have developed this pasta sauce oregano free, but I think that when you're trying to win over, um, you know, an eater of the commercial pasta sauce, the texture and the sweetness are actually going to be more important. Now, because I wouldn't recommend something like a canning recipe unless I'd actually made it, I spent all Thursday making and canning a huge batch of pasta sauce. And then I A-B tested my homemade sauce with the store-bought ragu. There is a super processed quality to the ragu that even three or four hours of cooking down my homemade sauce, I couldn't duplicate. There's that quality from the dried onions and all that tomato paste that you're just not going to duplicate with a fresh made homemade sauce. But I did manage a thick, lightly sweet sauce with very little noticeable acidity and no sort of distinct herbal notes that both my kids declared better than the commercial ragu. So I think, Matthew, that I've managed something that your wife is going to really like and that's going to feel like familiar to her compared to that commercial sauce. So a couple notes before I jump right into this recipe. I do add commercial tomato paste to the sauce. I use two small six ounce standard size tomato paste cans. The reason for this is it would take you all day to reduce down 30 pounds of tomatoes to something even close to commercial ragu thickness sauce. So a little help from the commercial tomato paste will get you to that thick sauce far faster and easier. The tomato paste also helps add that sort of long cooked pasty flavor to the sauce. Think of it as sort of like pouring in a little orange juice concentrate into your pitcher of fresh squeezed orange juice. We're just giving a little bit of a nod to the original commercial flavor to help our friends who prefer that transition to our homemade version. Now, two, I'm calling for this sauce to be pressure canned. The reason is that I can assure that the sauce is totally safe in the jar, in the canner, without the addition of citric acid or lemon juice, which would change the flavor of the sauce to something less like a commercial low acid flavor sauce. I developed this recipe by modifying from a recipe that called for pressure canning. So that's really what I'm comfortable recommending. However, according to the Fresh Preserving website, which is the website of the Ball Canning Company, the people who make the jars and the lids, a very similar recipe can safely be water bath canned if you add two tablespoons of bottled lemon juice or one half teaspoon of granular citric acid to every quart jar before processing. Now, if you go this route, you'll want to dramatically reduce the oil down to 1.5 tablespoons maximum. Make sure you don't increase the onion or the garlic at all. Acidulate your jars with bottled lemon juice or citric acid according to standard tomato canning procedure and process your quart jars 40 minutes in a boiling water bath canner. A third note, as I mentioned, you can modify the dry herbs all you want. I think the herbs called for here will get you very close to that original ragu flavor without any sort of specific notes of basil really standing out. It's oregano-free, but if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, this pasta sauce sounds good, but I love oregano— that's fine. You can go ahead and add some. You can add, remove, modify, or substitute dry herbs as much as you want. So if you prefer to add thyme or bay or black pepper, oregano, chili flakes, whatever you might prefer in your pasta sauce, you can go ahead and add that. So not a problem to play around with the dry herbs. Similarly, you can reduce the sugar or salt in this base recipe because I am deliberately aiming for a commercial style sauce and a sauce that's going to appeal to people who prefer that commercial flavor, both the sugar and the salt levels in this, in this sauce are quite high. If you're on a reduced sugar or sodium diet, you can cut either way down or if you want, and if you just need like flavor explosion all the time, you could increase the sugar or salt. I wouldn't really recommend increasing the sugar. I think that's just going to take you someplace where the, the sauce is just going to be way too sweet. But it's your flavor palette. It's your preference. And you certainly can if that's something you want. The only thing I can't recommend playing around with from a safety perspective is a change um, or the addition really of low acid ingredients like onions, peppers, etc. Even though this recipe is pressure canned, the total processing time may not be long enough if you start adding additional low acid ingredients. Okay. So that said, here is my recipe for a commercial style pasta sauce that will appeal to even the pickiest pasta sauce eater in your house. This recipe uh, makes about six to seven quarts, depending on how much you reduce. So six very thick quarts of sauce or seven more, sort of more moderately, but still quite thick jars of pasta sauce. You're going to need 30 pounds of Roma or sauce style tomatoes, one and a half cups of chopped onion, three tablespoons of finely minced garlic, a quarter cup of olive oil, two six-ounce cans of commercially prepared tomato paste, or if you happen to have tomato paste from a previous season's harvest, you can use homemade tomato paste. You just want to make sure it's as thick or as close to it as you can get as a commercial-style tomato paste. You're going to need one-and-a-half to two tablespoons of kosher salt, two tablespoons of dried basil, one tablespoon of dried parsley, three-quarter teaspoons of black pepper, and one-quarter to one-half cup of white sugar. Again, this is a recipe that's going to call for pressure canning. So uh, you want to make sure you're familiar with the process of using your pressure canner safely. There's a bunch of different steps um, for pressure canning that are very standard. I don't have time to go through them now. But if you go online, there are numerous reliable organizations that can take you through the process of using a pressure canner safely. Okay, let's make tomato sauce. So first things first, you're going to want to wash your tomatoes and make sure they're in good shape, just like you would when you're doing any kind of tomato canning process. And then you're going to want to peel your tomatoes. Now the standard way that you peel tomatoes is that you make a little X in the bottom of the tomato, you plunge them into boiling water for about a minute, and then you take all your tomatoes out and you plunge them into ice cold water to shock them, and then you slip off the tomato skins. This is a really great way to do it, but I have to tell you when I'm doing a large volume of tomatoes, I actually have a slightly different procedure. Um, What I do is I wash my tomatoes and then I take the core out and then I dump all the tomatoes in the boiling water for about a minute. I do this in stages because you can't overwhelm your boiling water. It does have to be a small enough quantity of tomatoes that the water can return to a boil in a fairly quick period of time. So for 30 pounds of Roma tomatoes, for example, I might do this in about five batches of blanching and boiling. So then instead of doing the shock in ice water, because I know that these tomatoes are going to get cooked way, way, way down, I just dump all the tomatoes hot onto a big sheet pan and let them cool off while I'm doing the the next batch of tomato blanching. And then I go through with a clean pair of rubber dishwashing gloves, the kind that have like little grippy bumps on the fingers. And once the tomatoes are cool enough to handle, you just pretty much grab them with the grippy rubber dishwashing glove and the skins will come right off. And you've already cored your tomatoes so you can skip that next step. So that's what I think is actually an easier way to wash and skin your tomatoes. And that's how I do it when I'm doing large batches like this. So in any event, once you've gotten your tomatoes peeled and cored, you want to chop them up enough that they can cook fairly quickly, so halves or quarters depending on the size of the tomatoes, and then dump all of them into a very large stock pot. You're going to boil your tomatoes, bring them up to a boil, and simmer them uncovered so you want to get as much moisture to sort of evaporate out as possible for about 20 to 40 minutes uh, just until the tomatoes are very tender. And then you're going to take all those peeled cooked tomatoes and run them through a food mill or a sieve. So the goal here is to get as much pulp as possible out of the tomatoes, all that thick pulpy stuff. We want all that, but we want to try and leave as many tomato seeds behind as we can. So um, I use a very traditional food mill for this. I think it works great, but there are, I know, other things that attach on to KitchenAid stand mixers and that kind of stuff um, that allow you to do this same thing. So whatever tool you have for getting the pulp of the tomato on one side and leaving the seeds behind, that's what you want to do. Now, in the meantime, while your tomatoes were boiling, um, go ahead and prepare your onions and your garlic, one and a half cups of onion, three tablespoons finely minced garlic, and saute that in your quarter cup of olive oil over medium heat until all of those vegetables and, and aromatics are tender and nice and translucent. And when your onions and your garlic are nice and translucent, just go ahead and set them aside until all your tomatoes are food milled. Okay, now you're going to need either your original big pot or another big pot because we're going to combine the sauteed onions and garlic, all the food milled tomatoes, the two cans of commercial tomato paste, your spices, so your basil and your parsley, one and a half tablespoons of kosher salt. You can start with a bit less if you're using a fine grain salt like pickling salt or sea salt and one quarter cup of white sugar. So we're starting out with a quarter cup sugar, but we might go up to even a half cup sugar, depending on how acidic the tomatoes are and your personal flavor preferences. Bring everything to a boil and simmer uncovered until the sauce is quite thick, thick enough for serving, thick enough that it sort of stands up on a spoon. This is probably going to take several hours, depending on the shape of your pot and your stove and how much energy you're getting into that tomato. But what you do want to make sure you do is stir frequently while the sauce is simmering and reducing because it can scorch on the bottom. So be very careful about that. You don't want to put all this work in and then get some scorching on the bottom. When the initial volume on the sauce has reduced by about one half and the sauce is really thick, serviceable, serviceable thick, right? Um, Go ahead and taste and adjust the seasoning to your preference. So additional salt you're probably going to want to add. You may want to add up to another quarter cup of sugar. So two tablespoons, a quarter cup as you like it. I think you get the most sort of ragu quality at about six total tablespoons of sugar. So that would be the first quarter cup, original quarter cup, and then two additional tablespoons. But you could go higher than that if you really want a very sort of sweet, you know, Chef Boyardee, ragu, kid appealing kind of flavor. And then if you want, you can also add additional black pepper. Um, To keep a very mild commercial style sauce, I wouldn't recommend additional dried herbs, but you certainly can add them if you prefer. Okay, when the sauce is as thick as you can uh, reduce it down before you lose your mind from impatience, it is time to fill your jars. So you're going to want a uh, standard processing procedure for pressure canning, make sure your jars are hot, make sure they're super clean, and then fill them leaving a one inch headspace. Um, wipe the rims. Set your lids, adjust the tightness on your bands, and then you're gonna to want to pressure can following standard pressure canning processes at 10 psi for 25 minutes for quarts. Um, if you're doing pints, it's 20 minutes for pints, but I'm assuming you're doing quartz. So 10 psi, 25 minutes for quarts. And you are going to have to adjust your pressure canning PSI based on altitude. So it's 10 psi at sea level. If you uh, are at higher altitude, altitude, make sure you adjust for your altitude. If you don't know what that means, you need to figure it out before you pressure can. Now, it is always hard to convey a recipe on the air, so I'm going to attempt to turn this TSB answer into a blog post with a printable recipe and some nice instructional photos for you guys, and I'm going to try and get that up on my website, nwedible.com, today. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this answer, I will have a written version of this response up and ready for you guys to read and reference back to. Truthfully, if my kids climb all over me, (laughs) I may not be able to get the recipe posted today, but I'm going to do my best. If it's not up today, it'll be up tomorrow. Okay, so I think that pretty much covers it, Matthew, and for everyone else who has a family member that just prefers that commercial-style pasta sauce to homemade, I hope this helps. Maybe we can pull a few more people into the, you know, homemade DIY approach to sauce making and food preservation and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for now, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Come find me anytime at nwedible.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com. And if you love what I do and if you want to support it directly, I'm at Patreon patreon.com slash NW Edible. Thank you to Jack. Thanks to Matthew for the great question. Thank you, TSP fam. Uh, I will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye.
1: Well, first, a big thank you to Erica for putting that much effort into this. I, I really didn't expect that, and, and and I do appreciate it. I will tell you, this question actually came in for me, and I kicked it to Erica, so I now think I owe her a beer or something for putting that much effort into it. I didn't do this one because my thought was, why would you want to? I mean, I and I, I do want to say a little on this, and I, I want to be tactful and not overly uh, mean to the people that like to eat this stuff, this institutional food, as I call it. But I think that that it is, I mean, that's the best way to look at it. This is institutionalized food, and it's an institutionalized generation. And we now have multi-generations of institutionalized people, like all this Chef Boy R D. Generation, And I'd really like to suggest that people that say, well, I only like ragu, or I only like this, or I won't eat that, and that came from the Garden Center, so please do yourself a favor and with a completely open mind, give fresh-cooked, real, non-institutionalized type foods a chance. I'm not saying you're going to like it because I don't like ragu. And no, no matter how much I gave it a chance, I don't think I'm going to like it. However, I will say this. I could come to like it if I ate it every day or often. And that's what has happened to the, the multiple generations now of children have grown up eating food out of packages, out of you know, TV dinners, canned foods, jarred. Mom's tired. Two family households started. Mom comes home, whips them. You know, ground meat in a pan does the best she can. Some ground meat in a pan, seasons it up a little bit, dumps some ragu on it, boils some spaghetti. You could feed a whole family for, you know, in, in today's money, less than 10 bucks. In the money back, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you could feed a whole family like that for about $2.50. You can understand why people did it. But what happened was our taste buds became overstimulated by all of these flavors and sugars. And that institutional taste. And when you stop eating institutional food for just, I'd say a month, when you go try to eat it again, you can't. You wonder how I ever, how did I ever eat something with that taste in it? However, I also was like, you know, the other thing. I I, I did some research on this on my own before I came to the Erica, and I found quite a few people asking the same question. They wanted to make it like prego or ragu or whatever. And it was often a lot of actually fairly health-conscious parents trying to get their kids off this stuff or their spouses or whatever, and their big concern was high-fructose corn syrup. And they would be much happier making it with actual plain old-fashioned sugar than HFSC. Or HFCS, HFCS, right? Okay, Um, And I get that. I get that. And I think that's a noble thing. And if if that's what it takes to be able to use your bounty from your garden and have your wife consume it, great. I will put one final thing out about this with spaghetti products in particular. I think the reason for this in America is because we make spaghetti and pasta dishes like morons most of the time. There is a place for lots of sauce and cheese. That's like a baked pasta dish or something, okay? But like a spaghetti with a little bit of ground meat or some chopped fresh tomatoes or something like that or some arugula. It should not be sauce with spaghetti. It should not even be spaghetti with sauce. The way you do this is you make your pasta like al dente, which means to the tooth. So that means you cook the pasta to the point where, when you take a little bit of it and you bite it, it's it's done, but it has a little bit of resistance in the center still. And you take that and you you, you get yourself like a pan with a little bit of oil in it, a little of olive oil. You just bring it to a little bit to a temperature, and you you add some some of the pasta to it, and you add a couple tablespoons of sauce, and you toss it until it's a light coating of sauce not a giant gollop in the middle. And then you put that onto a plate and you add a little bit of the meat that goes with it or or what have you. And if you you try that, you'll find that the reason that authentic sauces are thinner is because you can actually get them to coat the pasta. And it works well with vegetable uh, pastas as well, like spaghetti squash or zoodles or things like that. So just a PSA from Jack on this. If you're one of these people that's, you know, addicted to these institutional foods, with an open mind, and it's so important that the mind be open to this, give it a try. Give it a try. Because you can go to the finest restaurants in the world and they're not going to serve you Ragu. And there's a reason. Open opening up the taste buds is a big thing too. I think another thing that kills people with with flavor is if you're a smoker. And I'm not saying this lady is, but smokers just they can't taste food for for crap stop smoking you're killing yourself little aside here. my son just bought a new house. He purchased for seventy five dollars a refrigerator he's not trying to get rid of from his i guess it would be the, his 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 father and mother in law's mm, the father in law's mother right so somewhere in there i I don't really know that far deep into that side of their family um they smoke. Her and her husband smoke, like, constantly in their house. And the refrigerator stinks of cigarette smoke inside. You can see what that does to your taste buds and what it does to your body. If you're one of those people, I know it wasn't really related to the question, but please, please stop. Next, I have a question for old Doc Bones
7: on the HPV vaccine. Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with close to a 1,000 articles, podcasts, videos, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Mike, who writes... I have a question for old Doc Bones and would like to get your opinion as well. My daughter is 12 years old and our family doctor is pushing for her to get the HPV vaccine. I have concerns about the side effects and effectiveness about this vaccine. What is your and Dr. Bones' opinion of this? Is it worth the risk of the side effects? It's my understanding it only protects for five to eight years after receiving it, and that 95% of people that get HPV never develop cervical cancer. So I question just how effective it would be. The government's pushing that both males and females get this vaccine around the age of 12. It's my understanding that some states are even requiring it. The fact that the government says you need it is probably most worrisome to me. Thanks, and 73. Hmm, Mike. W-A-3-R-F-E. I don't know that code, Mike, but I'm sure it means something to the rest of the Member Support Brigade. Mike, Human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States with 79 million people having it and 14 million new cases every year. It's so common that nearly all sexually active people get it at some point of their life. There are 170 different subtypes of HPV, 40 of which are known to cause health problems, including genital warts and cancer of the male and female sexual organs, even throat cancer. You can get HPV by having vaginal, anal, or oral sex with anyone that has the virus. Most people with HPV don't know they're infected, and they never develop symptoms or health problems from it, as you say. Having said that, though, HPV can be passed to others even when the infected person has no sign of it, and there's no sure way to know which people have HPV and which ones who have HPV will develop cancer or other health problems in the future, usually years down the road. Before HPV vaccines were introduced, about 350,000 women and men sought medical help for genital warts caused by HPV every year. About 1 in 100 sexually active adults in the U.S. has them at any given time. In the United States, there are about 27,000 cases of cancer due to HPV that occur each year, 11,000 of which are cancers of the cervix, the neck of the womb. Interestingly, the subtypes of HPV that cause cancer do not cause warts and vice versa. Now, about the HPV vaccine. A vaccine exists, indeed, that protects against the most common subtypes of HPV, not every subtype. Since the vaccine works best if given before a person becomes sexually active, the CDC Centers for Disease Control and and Prevention recommends that all boys and girls Ages 9 to 13 should get vaccinated. The Vaccines given in two doses with the second given six months after the first. Catch-up vaccines can be given to males through age 21, females through age 26 if they weren't previously vaccinated. Risks of the vaccine include feigning spells at the time of administration, soreness at the injection site, and there is a slightly elevated risk of blood clots in the veins. Now, serious issues, though, occur it should be noted, much less frequently than the number of HPV-related cancer cases every year. It's important to know that. If a decision is made to avoid the vaccine, strict use of condoms every time that person has sex can lower, but not eliminate the risk of getting HPV. Strict monogamous relationships also less likely to spread HPV. It's difficult, though, to predict this. The decision comes down to this, Mike. Can you know how likely it is that your daughter might get a dangerous type of HPV? Can you know how many sexual partners she'll have, whether they'll have HPV? Well, you probably don't have an ability to know that. I've seen many cases of cervical cancer in women and genital warts in women and men. I have operated on these people, and if their parents saw these people post-op and were asked, did they wish that they took them to get the vaccine earlier in life? Well, what do you think the answer would be? This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at DR Bones, Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget the members support brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That store Doom Thanks again. So so my
1: take on this is I'm far more skeptical of the value of this vaccine than Doc is. And and Doc's a personal friend, and we have our debates sometimes when we sit down and have an old-fashioned together and stuff like that, and it's okay that we disagree. Um, I will tell you that my view of this is that, you know, what Doc said is true. There's over 30 strains of HPV. The uh, Gardasil vaccine protects against four only two of which are claimed to be the causes of cancer, and it's not really 100% that they do, but maybe they do and they possibly do. Um, The five-year survival rate of people diagnosed with cervical cancer in the United States is 95%. So even if you get cervical cancer, it tends to be a cancer with a low risk of death. Though surgical mutilation could be a problem, though I think we have better ways of treating it now than we did in the past. But I think that's a scare tactic that you will, you know, if you saw somebody, you could go back and I, I, I just, I have a real problem with this vaccine. It was fast tracked through the system. Rick Perry, when he signed the only executive order he signed as a governor of the state of Texas, the only one, mind you. Uh, for this, said the reason he did it is so insurance companies would have to pay for it. He publicly said that. It's not a conspiracy theory. He publicly said that. And he meant in the way that it would be better for parents. If we require it, the insurance companies will have to cover it, and therefore parents won't have to pay for it out of pocket because it's expensive. (laughs) Um, I have a great article for you that you can read. It's on a website called The Truth About Cancer. It's, it's very well referenced. It's, um, it's not written like some kind of a conspiracy theory or something like that. Uh, it's very factually based, and I think it will help people make a better decision for themselves and their children if they want to do this. And when this first came out, they were mandating children at 14 have this uh, vaccine. And, and now I'm hearing as young as eight years of age to have this vaccine. All I see here is a cash cow for Merck. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, when Rick Perry signed that executive order, the only executive order, once again, that he signed as governor of Texas, when he signed that executive order, it was about two weeks prior to his chief of staff leaving his job, resigning, and he went to work for whom? Ding dong. Merck Pharmaceutical as a lobbyist. Two weeks later, his old boss signs the only executive order he ever signed to mandate their new vaccine, which they have a patent on for 19 to 22 years, depending on how you interpret patent law. Hmm, isn't that special? I'm just saying... There's been no long-term studies on this. We don't know if the vaccine itself might cause cancer. And at the relatively low rates of cervical cancer in North America, it may in fact cause more cancer than it prevents, even if it works the way that they say that it does. And by the way, those other 30-odd strains of HPV, you're offered no protection at all for And we don't really know how reliable and protected you are from it from the ones it says that it protects from. It just seems like a big way to make a lot of money to me. And I look at it this way. I never had it. Most of you never had it. Most of you have no plans to go get it. And if you wouldn't go get it for yourself, well, I'm married now. Yeah, sure you are, but you could get divorced one day. You better be ready in case you do, right? If you wouldn't go get this vaccine for yourself, you should think about it before you put it into your children. I'm not even saying not to do it. I'm saying think about it, and please read, the article that I have on this, and uh, get as much information as you can about any vaccine before you have it injected into your child's body. I'm sure I'll be called anti-science for this because telling someone that they should be fully informed about what they're being told to put in their child's body is clearly anti-science. Anyway, um, that brings me to a question that I have for myself today. This comes from Kieran, or Kiernan, or Kieran, I think is how you'd say that name, Kieran. Uh, Kieran says, hijack, question one, could acclaimed economist Tony Seba and InvestVolt chairman Adrian Pipe be correct in their predictions that the internal combustion engines will be history in about 15 years and that all new road vehicles will be electric? I find it hard to believe that a 50-ton truck could be powered from batteries in any useful way. Question two. There are a lot of predictions about driverless cars being the future, but my question is how many people, especially people who work in unenjoyable, over-controlling jobs, want their driving experience to turn into a, quote, bus drive, end quote, when they lose their, where they lose their last bit of control they have in their day. I mean, for many people, their lives are increasingly controlled, dictated, and attacked by the machine of life which is continuously encroaching on their free will under the stick of government and employer, and driving is an escape from that where man gets to control a machine and have some freedom, choice and fun and while doing it. And while, why does that pleasure aspect of controlling a car never get mentioned by the mainstream media in relation to driverless cars? Will people really choose to travel in a vehicle that takes away the last bit of control from them uh, and which may be annoying as an uncooperative and bad Windows computer, or will people have a choice in the matter? Uh, also, will ordinary cars still be available as cheaper options without all those cameras, computers, electronics, stacked into the driverless cars, or will they be forced out? Thanks. Regard, Kieran. Uh, okay, so here's my deal with this. I think first, let's start with the first one. In 15 years, will all new vehicles be electric? Maybe, but I doubt it. But sooner or later, they will. It might be 25 years. It might be 20 years. But, yes, that's the direction we're going. Can you make a vehicle like a large truck run on electricity? Have you ever seen an electric train? They're a little bit bigger than trucks, aren't they? Now, sure, you got power rate to them, but electricity is not. Electricity moving big stuff is actually not a problem. We're actually really, really good at it. And we may, in fact, see a return to the use of more rail-like technologies for moving large amounts of cargo over long distances Uh, instead of the old-style railroads. you are talking about something maybe that runs right along with the highway system that's more like a maglev technology. That may actually be in our future, believe it or not. Um, And it may not. We'll see. But that is definitely a possibility. It would definitely be more efficient and cost less money and allow smaller uh, trucks to be uh, satellite delivery vehicles, kind of thinking like a space station with you know smaller ships docking and larger ships going here and there and shuttles moving around, kind of that type of technology. That's actually a very efficient distribution model, uh, and it, it's very similar to how a warehouse runs, uh, with items coming in on one side being stocked, parceled out, packaged, and leaving on the other. And that's, that's very much a possibility to where we could be going long-term. Exactly how that works out, I don't know. And I haven't given it an incredible amount of thought, but those are just my initial thoughts on that. Now, this concept of will people accept driverless vehicles given that it'll take away the last bit of control in their life? Okay, I can look at this two different ways. I can look at this when I'm a windy country road and I'm driving a car with a really great suspension and I can give a little bit more than I'm supposed to to the accelerator and I can bite those turns a little bit and play some music and feel like I'm in control. I I, I understand what you're saying there, but the average commuter, that's not what the average commuter deals with. Trust me, when I was driving from Frisco to home to Arlington, which was like 55 miles if I could have kicked back and read the paper on my tablet or my phone or just listened to some music and zoned out and just relaxed and just took a nap maybe and got up and walked into my house, I think I would have been a lot happier than sitting in traffic going, oh, look at this jerk here, look at that jerk there, look at this jerk over here. Oh, why is Why are we stopped? Why are how can you possibly have four lanes of traffic and not move an inch? How is this possible? And you get up two miles later and some guy's changing a tire and everybody's looking at him like no one's ever seen a guy change a tire before. I don't feel like I would have been out of control. If the traffic moved more efficiently, albeit maybe slower at top speeds, but more continuously self-adjusting, and I got to get home without doing any work and without stressing over it. I I, I don't think that would have been a bad thing at all. If I maybe had more time, I would have you know, made phone calls to people because generally I don't do a lot of phone calls when I'm in heavy traffic because you're dealing with things that make you angry. Um, it did lead to the survival podcast, I'll give you that, but that is an exception to the rule. We all know that, that not many people start podcasts in their car and turn it into full-time business. So, uh, But it was that frustration, that very frustration that led to, if I want to be sitting in traffic dealing with asshats, I might as well do something with it, and this is what I want to do, so it's what I'm going to do. But no, I, I don't think that it would be that. I think that even in a world where we move to autonomous vehicles, at least initially, We'll have a lot of vehicles on the road that people still drive. Um, I think they'll be more prevalent in rural situations and less prevalent in urban situations. And I don't just mean suburban. I mean true urban, like commutes in and out of cities and things like that. I actually see some of the first autonomous vehicles as being something that, like, you know, we're not going very fast anyway. I'll engage the auto drive and sit here and maybe work on my project or whatever, you know, because this is stop-and-go traffic anyway. But when I get off that main exit and I get on that little bit of windy road, maybe I'll take back over the car. I think there might be more of that. But I think that'll be a generational thing. That'll be a generational thing. Because by the time our, you know, if you're a grandparent, at least the grandkids that ain't born yet, by the t- you know that you'll have that aren't they're, they're on the way in maybe a year or two. I think those kids will grow up in a world where you don't need a driver's license to have a car. And they're not going to care. They're going to have other releases and other ways of entertaining themselves and stuff like that. And I th- I think we as human beings we have a tendency to to focus way too much on the time that we exist in now as though it's always been. Americans, for the majority of the time there was in America, didn't grow up where everybody had a car. You say from 1776, right? It, it was it wasn't until about the 1920s when cars really began to to take over, and it was by the 30s that you know the average house had at least one car. So we've gone from the 30s. Up to like twenty seventeen. So that's not even a hundred years of our two hundred and almost forty year history. So for half of the time that just America was here. And not the colonies, just like what we think of as since we said, you know, screw you to the King of England, we're on our own. Over half of that time there wasn't even cars for the average person. And for most of that time there were nobody knew what a car was. And the time that America's existed in modern history, compared to other nations, we're a baby. We're a baby. We're an infant. We're a puppy. America is a puppy. That doesn't mean that we're not one of the one of the most powerful nations that ever existed. But if you compare our, our history in, in years to Italy or you know what was Rome, I guess or, or Greece, um, we're we're pretty new kid on the block. And human beings. Human beings. If we look at the planet as a whole, and we said that human beings were going to be measured by a clock, and that at zero zero zero, you know, and zero, 1 seconds, right, uh, of a new day. So we've had our midnight, and we've gone into that first second of the new day, one a.m. If that was when the Earth was formed, and we measured the entire history up to today, is a single 24-hour day. Human beings show up at 10 seconds to midnight the next day. 10 seconds. We represent 10 seconds of the history of the world. And 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 that you know that may not seem to play into technology because we're the ones that built all this technology, et cetera, but. It, the speed at which one generation adopts technology that replaces the technology of the prior generation. How many of you that are my age or a little older, so you say 40 and up, when cell phones first came out, it's a dad, they're a fad. And then next thing you know, you had a pager because they made you have one for work so they could get a hold of you. You didn't really want a cell phone, but eventually you got one. Then you kind of liked it. Then it became really affordable. And then they started doing all kinds of cool things like surf the Internet on them and text people and take pictures with them. But you still said this, well, I'll never not have a landline in my house. And how many of you now do not have a landline in your house? What percentage of people that if you can get Internet access, high-speed Internet access without a phone line, don't have any service on the phone line that's still attached to their house? That's not even a whole new generation, is it? Because most, we grew up with the avocado phone on the wall. That's what we grew up with. right? When you, and you went out and you bought a longer cord for the handset that always got twisted up so that you could get there. And by the way, those of you that are younger than us, I, I, will, re, I will remind you of something you never got to, to, to remember because you never got to experience it. In the early 80s and back... You weren't allowed to own a phone, you weren't allowed to plug a phone in, and you weren't allowed to move a phone. I remember we bought our house in Pennsylvania. It was a house that was built in the early 70s. And when we moved in, there was a phone line plugged into a phone jack. And it was just sitting there on the floor with no furniture in the house. We're just moving in. And my son says, what's this here for? I said, I don't know. We're not going to plug a phone in there. Just unplug it. And he was like... Nine years old, I guess, and he knew how to unplug a phone. And he goes, "It won't come out of the wall." I'm like, "What do you mean it won't come out?" I think he's you know, like being, you know, kind of, you know, wimpy or something. You know, I just, I can't do it. I'm like, "What do you mean you can't do?" it? He goes, "There's some holding it in." I said, "Well, it's the clip, push it." He goes, "No, there's a staple or a nail." And I went, "Oh my!" So I go over and look, and there was a staple holding the phone plug into the phone jack. And I said, yeah, you're right. So I went and got a pair of needle nose and I yanked it out and I unplugged it. He said, why the heck is that there, Dad? And I said, well, Matt, you know, back in the early 80s when I was a kid living here, they all were like that because if you wanted to move your phone, you had to call the phone company and they moved it for you. You weren't allowed to plug your phone in. They said you could hurt something or hurt yourself, which, of course, was a lie. We've come from that to people not even having that technology in their home. In 35 years. That's how fast that happened. We've come from the fact that people said that computers will never take over. I remember my dad when, when I got my first Commodore computer. And uh, the way I got my first Commodore computer is I needed like 600 bucks to get it. And I was mowing lawns and stuff like that. And I had saved up like 50 bucks. So I go to my dad and I tell him I want this computer. And he says, How much is it? And I tell him, $600. He called it a Hibachi computer. And I said, What do you mean a Hibachi computer? He said, Burns up my money. Like that Atari game system you have, it burns up my money. And I said, Well, I got 50 bucks. He said, That's a long way from 600. I said, Dad, if I can get to 300, will you pay for half of it? And he he got this like wry smile and said, Yeah, I'll do it. And I know what he was thinking this kid's never going to get to 300 bucks. That's a lot of money back in the early 80s. And kids like to spend money, but I really wanted that Commodore computer. So I got my three hundred bucks together and my dad had his faults, but he was a man and I've inherited this from him, good to his word. So I came and said, Dad, I got it. And this was like almost a year later. He says, You got what? I, like I expected him to remember. I said, I got six hundred I got three hundred bucks. I want to go get my computer. And he remembered and he said, Really? So we got the money out and I had like three hundred and twenty bucks. And he said, well, I guess you only need, you know, 280. I said, no, no, that wasn't our deal, right? So he, he was good at his word, and we went out and got a computer. I remember what he said. He said, that's just a fad, and uh, they're, they're not going to be everywhere. You know, and a, a few months later when I got my first modem, which I think was a 9,600 baud modem, where you dialed a number to a specific computer to connect to it for like a chat, the original chat boards, he said, that's going to cost me money. I'm like, no, it's a local number, you know, and, he didn't get it. And we've gone from that to a computer that blows that computer away that you carry around in your pocket. And we did that in 35 years. And the speed of innovation is accelerating. To think that it will not completely transform our landscape leaving many things that we thought to be commonplace foreign to us over the next 30 years is insane. It's, it's resistance. It's perception bias it's cognitive dissonance it's the guy that said they'll never shut this factory down it's the guy that opened the vhs store uh in in the early the late 80s and said i'll be around for 30 years people are always going to want these things and want even a bad technology and he didn't even have a bad run but you've seen an open blockbuster store lately it was the people that said when CDs came out, well, this will replace tapes, but man, this is going to be around for In of that. Moment. Well, how many CDs, they're, they're still there, but how many do you buy a year? I don't buy any. Why would I? I have unlimited access to music on my phone for a few dollars a month for less than the price of one CD. And that's even playing above board. If you just want to pirate music, you can have anything you want for nothing. This is the world we're going into. And any belief that it's not happening is somebody that wants to hold on to it. It'd be like two horses having a conversation in 1900 when they see the first horseless carriage saying, ah, that's a fad, they'll never replace us. We're the horses this time around. We're being replaced. Be prepared for it. And be prepared for the next generation to not have the hang-ups that we do about letting go of these old technologies that to us are brand new ones. you think your cell phone is awesome? Do you think that something's going to replace that? And when it does, what will it be? It may be inside your eyeballs. That's how radical things might shift in the next 15 to 20 years. Self-driving cars, they might actually be seen... ...is a rather tame innovation... ...15 to 20 years from now. They may not seem like the biggest thing that happened... ...as is, is incredible as it seems to us. I mean, if you look at what people thought... ...were the big technological innovations of the 90s... ...if you look at the early 90s... ...no one really thought it would be the internet. It was all this other stuff. But when the internet came... ...it disrupted everything... And it enabled an entire new plethora of new technologies. We spend so much time on cryptocurrencies because they're doing the same thing right now. For all of the bashing I did of ICOs, they're enabling companies to innovate and raise capital quicker without the government interfering. I mean, we like the fact that cryptocurrency lets us do business with each other with a privacy and not having the government interfere. But companies like the fact that it allows them to raise funds without the government putting them through the crap that companies typically have to do to offer stock. And anybody can do it. Well, it takes one of those. In spite of the fact that I'm ripping on them earlier about how they screw stuff up and how I know some of them are going to fail miserably, it takes one of them to become the next Amazon. To radically transfer the, trans, transform the world in ways we can't even imagine. Right now you have companies fighting for the market shares of the Amazons and the Googles. And you have companies saying, I don't even care about their market share. I'm innovating the next thing. I'm, in, I'm innovating the next thing. I'm building the next thing. I'm going elsewhere. I'm going beyond. It's going to be exciting times to live in and very disruptive times. Stay prepared. Stay awake. Stay alert. And stay alert for the opportunities that exist for you to be able to thrive in this changing world, even if you're an older fart like me. With that, if you enjoyed today's show and you like the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you get there, you can see the Amazon deals of the day by clicking over there. You can shop on Amazon uh, and do your regular shopping that way. And you can see our item of the day. That we reviewed today, I have the Moroccanov Companion Heavy Duty Fixed Blade Knife. Okay, it's the Mora. That's 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 how everybody says it. The Mora. So it's the Mora Companion. It's the heavy duty version. And what's the heavy duty version? It's beefed up a bit. The the blade's a little bit longer in the tang. It's got a thicker blade, a heavier blade, a little bit heavier material that the handle's built out of. Um, and it's it's six bucks more. Uh, than the Companion MG. Uh, and I definitely recommend that you spend the extra six bucks for the quality of this knife. Now, why did I recommend this knife? Well, today I recommended it because when I looked at last year's sales, I realized we sold a ton of these and I never even featured it. That's how popular it was. Popular enough to show up on the first page of results without being featured. Uh, the MG version, the, the lighter duty version, actually was like a top 10 item, but I, I think that was because of a big sale that was run on them on Amazon. Um, the heavy duty is a much better knife. Now, I have talked to people who make knives for a living, like Patrick Rohrman and this knife is not like equivalent to a, 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 an empty knives genesis it's not or any custom knife or any really high end knife out there but people that make those kind of knives i'm like you know what if you had a knife kind of of this quality and they're like i can't make i can't buy the materials to make a knife like that for 20 dollars that's pretty high praise swedish made really great carbon steel 1095 carbon just a great knife. And I, because the price point is under $20, bucks, they are one of those knives that I think everybody should have a couple of them. Just everybody should have a couple. I mean, it's just a good, solid, workhorse knife to have. And if something goes wrong with it, if you lose it, if you loan it to somebody and something happens to it, you don't get really upset. But I think if Mora sold this knife for 30 or 40 bucks, people would buy it and not even think twice about it. They'd be like, that's how much they cost. They're a great knife. That's, that's how, how much I think of them. They are a very good, solid knife. You can check it out in a review today. Now, here's the one thing I want to tell you about this. It, my head hurts when I read reviews of Morris. They make stainless steel and carbon steel options. Any of their carbon steel knives. My head hurts when I read the one-star reviews. Well, I only used it a couple times and put it away, and now it's all rusty. It's because it's carbon steel, you dolt. Carbon steel rusts if you don't oil it and take care of it. But here's how I feel about a working knife like this. I have no need for this knife to have a mirror polish on it. I kind of wish it didn't come with one. I really do. I don't think there's any purpose to these knives having a mirror polish. So I create a patina on mine, and I do that with something as simple as vinegar, white, plain old white vinegar. And all you do is suspend it in a jar where the tip doesn't touch the bottom, so like using a little clamp or something like that to do that, right up till it touches the hilt, and set that thing in vinegar and let it set overnight, Wipe it off the next day. Give it a little rub with really light rubs. you don't want to rub your patina off with some steel wool and maybe a little bit of polish compound or buffing compound. And if you like it, you're done. Put a little oil on it and go on your way. If you want a little more patina, soak it for another day. I was going to put up a video because there's so many people who have done this on YouTube. But all the videos I found, apparently somebody came up with the idea, let's boil the vinegar. And if you boil the vinegar and you put the knife in the hot vinegar, it makes the patina faster. It, it does do that, okay? It's it's completely impractical and not necessary. While it might be faster, I don't believe it goes as deep. And and I don't believe that you need to get your patina on there in you know, two 10-minute boiling dunks. And I don't believe in spending energy. You don't need to. It's a $20 knife. If you, if you can wait a day for it to come in the mail, you can wait a day for it to sit in the vinegar. And I just think it doesn't make any sense to me that you're sitting there boiling vinegar and stinking up your house with boiling vinegar stink if you're not getting pickled eggs at the end of the day. It's just not worth it. Just stick it in a jar with some vinegar with a clamp, leave it overnight, clean it off the next day, and that will turn into like a dark gray color. I've also seen people do some pretty cool things with mustard, putting patterns on their blades and stuff like that. You can Google it and play around with that. I've done this a lot with the Mora Number no. Two. That's the red-handled wooden version of this knife, a little bit different blade profile. And I've done those and I've burnt the wood off them. I and there's a lot of cool stuff out there with that. But I think this is a better knife as far as the way it fits in the hand and it's it's a you know non-slip grip and things like that. Check it out the Mora Mora the Mora Companion Heavy Duty Fixed Blade Knife. Uh, it'll set you back a whop in 1895. Great knife, you know. Those of you guys with young people, you're starting to trust with knives that are like fixed blade knives and stuff. Great first knife for that young bushcrafter in your life or something like that. Ladies, you get one of these for old man on Father's Day. He's not gonna bitch about it. He'd like it better than a tie. I'm just Father's Day passed already, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. I remember now. i got a call from my son. <laughs> I'm not big on Hallmark holidays, but hey, maybe a belated Father's Day gift, right? Or a birthday or something like that. I think any dad would like the uh, the Mora Companion. Uh, check it out at tspaz.com. Remember, whenever you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you always help support the work we do at the Survival Podcast. That really brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is by a guy named Eric Church, who's a country music guy. And I think John Adam picked this one because now that I have him doing it and he knows what episodes are going on, it's pretty easy to calculate what day of the week the show's going to run. And this is a Friday song, if I ever heard one, drinking my hand. And it is. there's no deep message to this song, okay? There's no, like, inspirational message in this song and the lyrics itself. This is about, I work my ass all week, and you know what? It's been a tough week, it's been a rough week, and I'm done for the week It's Friday, and all I want is a damn drink in my hand. I want to hang out with my friends. I want to listen to some music. I want my life to be about me and what I like to do for the weekend. That's a good thing, guys. That's a good thing. I will say this, though. I talk about perspective all the time because the way that you perceive things is directly a result of where you are in your walk in life. I used to feel a lot more like this song than I do now. I do look forward to my weekend still because while I it's not because well I don't have to do the show it's because I don't have to do the show I can get other things done I can do other work where when I when I when I used to have a job especially before I started this show when I got done for the week I didn't give a damn okay I didn't give Nate damn about working on nothing except maybe tooling around in my backyard or going fishing or something like that, until Monday morning. I didn't even think about it Sunday night. And I felt a lot more like this song back then. And those of you that still do, the reason to work your weekends now, the reason to do things now to build that side hustle up, to not live that way, is so that you can feel that way too. So this song can just be a fun song instead of an anthem to your life. With that, I hope you have a great weekend. If you're into it, I hope you have a drink in your hand if you want to. And if you're not into it, have a drink in your hand. It's a lemonade or something. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your family. And come back hard Monday morning. We'll be here uh, Monday afternoon for you with another episode of the show. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Blue.